Good morning, everybody. On this <clears throat> second Sunday of Advent, last week we looked at John's Gospel, chapter 1, <clears throat> recording that Jesus came and brought light. Today, this second Sunday of Advent, Another thing that John says came into the world by Christ is life. The scripture that we want to look at then is in John, a couple of different passages, beginning with John chapter 1 and verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then, in the third chapter of John, beginning with verse 3, this is the conversation with Nicodemus, the major teacher in the Jewish nation, considered the teacher of Israel, came to him, questioning him about his message and who he was and so forth. And in the third verse, after Nicodemus starts out saying, nobody can do the things you're doing unless they come from God, there's an introduction to his discussion, Jesus kind of cuts him off, interrupts him really in three, and says, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Briefly, all Jesus is doing there is drawing a parallel between our physical beginning. We are born into this world flesh. I must also be born spiritually. When he says water, he's not saying we're born by baptism. Okay, That's a common misunderstanding of that scripture. Just as we're, we have a birth date physically, we, we need a birth date spiritually. <clears throat> Do not marvel, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We'll end our reading there Maybe refer to it in a moment. Then John 10, John chapter 10, the 10th verse. Jesus comparing himself to the door of the sheepfold. The only way to get into the sheepfold is by him. Then says... The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. 
I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Then one chapter over in the 11th chapter, the 25th verse, this is the death of Lazarus. He has not been in this account yet in chapter 11, raised from the grave. Jesus is still speaking to his sisters who are grieving and telling him, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, in the 25th verse, says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die physically, he shall live spiritually. And whoever lives and believes in me spiritually shall never die spiritually. Do you believe this? Now, Jesus, secondly, brings life. Why do I need Jesus to bring life? Because we are dead. Now, I have to explain that. When we come into this world as children, as an infant, though we're born with our Father's resemblance spiritually, we're born with an inclination to disobey God. It's called the sinful nature. We ought to be born dead spiritually, but we're not. Why not? Because of what is called prevenient grace. It's the grace of God, unmerited, it's unconditional, it's free to every human being on the globe that's ever born into this world. Because in infancy we are in innocency, Christ, God the Father through Christ, makes us alive, meaning all infants up until they reach the age of accountability where they would sin willfully are covered. All children who die before they personally reach the age of accountability are covered by the atonement members of the household of God, and are taken to heaven if they perish during that period of their life. So we're made alive by pure grace, no merit on our part. But we die. How do we die? And What does that mean? When we reach that age, when we understand moral and spiritual truths, and our conscience is alive, and we know to do right, and we willfully choose to do the opposite, that incurs guilt, condemnation from God, because I know what to do and I won't do it, and the ultimate result of that is death. Now what do we mean by death? Does death mean you cease to be? 
There's one thing we need to remember in the Scripture. Whether it's physical death or it's spiritual death, we do not cease to be. Death doesn't mean that we cease to be. It means in some way we're separated. Physical death occurs when my we would call it soul or slash spirit, is separated from my body. My body dies. The animating principle within my life ceases to be. So my body then, the temple, the tent in which my spirit lives, dies. But I don't stop being. We gather together. We have funerals. We go through the normal grief and all of the disjointedness that comes into the world, which, by the way, God never, ever intended. When a person dies physically, we don't see them any longer. We can't speak to them and so forth. But they are alive still. Their spirit lives on in another dimension, in another life. So death, physical death, is separation of my spirit from my body. But the I, the me, lives on. Now, that soul slash spirit, and I'm not going to get into all of the, whether it's, soul, spirit, body, or just body and spirit, or whatever. Just the essential me, the real me, the person that thinks, feels, reasons, chooses, and has and relates, relates to people. We relate to ourself. We've all seen people, none of us do it, but we've all seen people sitting there in the cars at the stoplight, talking to themselves. I've never done that. You haven't done that. That's not crazy. There is a self here. There's a self in here that we reason with. Scriptures are filled with it. David talks about, he said, soul, talking to himself, he says, why are you cast down? Why are you discouraged? Why are you heavy-hearted? Hope in God. He's talking to himself. That isn't insane. Okay? That self, though, being guilty of sinning and rebelling and disobeying God is separated no fellowship, no comradeship, no friendship with God. So the real me may be physically walking around, talking, thinking, buying, living. But towards God, the scripture says, you're dead. Not ceasing to be but you're separated from God. Isaiah said, God 
isn't the problem. He said, your sins and iniquities have separated you from God. So when we sin against God as free moral agents, we die. We're separated from God. There is, and I won't get off the subject here, but we have to remember, we have to repeat truth to ourselves and know it, believe it, grasp it. Sin separates from God. The soul that sins, it shall die. Now, God said that. He told Adam and Eve, you disobey me, you'll die. Bizarre doctrine that has virtually swamped the so-called Bible-believing church today is that sin won't separate a believer from God. Very interesting. Sin will kill a sinner. Sin will send a sinner to hell. But once somebody prays some little prayer and signs a card, then all future sins have no separating ability at all. We sin all the time. Probably shouldn't. And what is he talking about? Mistakes and failure. No. He's talking about belligerent in your face. James said, you know to do good and you won't do it. That's sin, he said. That separates me from God. If persisted in, refusing to repent of it and amend my ways, it will send me to what the scripture calls the second death. Which is, and here's what the second death is. The second death is hell. The second death means being spiritually dead when physical death overtakes me. If I, scripture's filled with a little phrase that he died in his sins. So-and-so died in his sins. That means physical death overtaking me while I'm in a state of separation from God spiritually. When physical death overtakes me, I'm no longer able to repent, to pray, to call out to God. That's why, since we don't know the day of our death, that's why God everywhere in Scripture is so if you want to use this term even of God, so desperate and so urgent that we walk with God and that if we're not right with God, we get right before we die. That's why God is pleading with us all the time. Isaiah said, all day long, God says, I've held out my hands pleading with a rebellious people. Because, what's he pleading? I want to get you out of death, spiritual death, separation from me, and give you life. 
So the reason Jesus came and said, I came that I might give you life, is because we're dead. And in this spiritual death state, I am completely incapable of doing anything on my own and in my own strength about it. If God doesn't waken me, if his voice, like Jesus with Lazarus in this 11th chapter of John, if Jesus' voice doesn't speak, Lazarus, come forth. I remain helplessly dead spiritually. But Jesus came. It's almost like Jesus said to his disciples in the first part of John 11, they're not near where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. And someone brings them news that Lazarus is very ill. And his disciples said, well, are we going to go visit him? Jesus waited four days, did nothing. They thought. How often do we think God isn't doing anything? Yeah, he is. He intentionally waited four days before he said, now, let's go see Lazarus. And the disciples said, you know, is he well or what? And he said, he's sleeping. And they still under, not understanding. He said, well, why are we going to go wake him up? Because Jesus said, I'm going to wake him up. They said, well, if he's been sick and now he's asleep, tide's turned. He's getting better. What, what are you talking about? Then Jesus plainly said, he's dead. Well, at that point, of course, he said, what's the point of going? And he said, I'm going to wake him up. We now see he meant something different than awakening him from sleep. He said, I'm going to call him out of death. Pretty radical concept to them. They go, and of course, there's all the weeping and everything going on. And Jesus then says, goes to the gravesite, and he says, take away the stone from the cave, the, the round rock that was rolled against that opening. Take it away. They said, his sister said, Lord, by this time, there's a stench. He's been dead four days. A little side note. Jesus knows everything he's doing. The Jews, all gathered around, had a long-held notion. Who knows where they got it? But they had a long-held notion that the spirit of the person who's died hangs around the grave site for three days during which resurrection is supposedly possible. But beyond three, it's hopeless case. can't happen. Now whether or not that's... A, I don't know where they got that. I don't consider it accurate. But nevertheless, that's what they thought. Jesus knew that's what they thought. So he waits four days. He did that on purpose. So you'll see 
this is, I am truly God. He knows what he's doing, even when we think he's doing nothing. I don't know what that scene must have been like. But you know, in truth, with every human being that ever comes to God, heeds the call of God, it's spiritually replayed. To stand there, have them roll that stone away. And then he said he called out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, it says, came out of the tomb, wrapped in grave clothes. We know all that. They didn't embalm, but they put spices and so forth and wrapped the body in linen strips. Loose him and let him go. The amazing thing is the wickedness of the human heart with unbelievers. Those who were trying to put Jesus out of business ran to Jerusalem and tattled. But what did they tattle? Let me tell you what they say when they ran to the chief priests. Here's what he did. Do you know what he did? He raised a man from the dead. Now, I don't know about you. I wouldn't mess with him. You understand? It never phased them. Do you know why it didn't phase them? Because they were dead. When we're dead spiritually, even things like that don't penetrate us. That's the, that's the depth of death spiritually that we don't get it. We just don't get it. We are in reality then. We're no different, and Jesus meant this all through Scripture, when God tells us we're dead. We, not, and I'm not being flippant about death, but for virtually everyone here, we've been at funerals, and we've seen an open casket, and so forth. Um, and in the ministry, I've seen, I have no way to know, to tell you how many people, how many corpses I've seen. They're not aware. I've stood over the casket of parents, my parents, loved ones. We're grieving. Tears rolls down our cheeks. They don't know it. They're dead. You understand? Spiritually then, the hand of God through the world, beautiful sunset, sunrise, everything that reminds us about God, we're dead to it. We're dead. Spiritually, the things of God, the truths of God that are all around us, we're dead. We don't get it. Unless Jesus calls me out of the grave, I'm dead. But he came to do just that. Now, 
on what basis does he do that? This is important. He first, how does he, how does he bring me back from the dead? He, in his total grace, no earning, I don't do anything, it's not, well, he's a nice guy, so I'm going to work on him. He works on every soul. Last week we looked, he's the light that lights every person that comes into the world. So there's light, even in the darkness of death, there's light. And it's our conscience. And it's Christians who are around us, who speak to us, who all in God's great plan of waking me up. And he convicts my heart. And I feel condemnation. I feel, Jesus said in John 3, we love John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we, we love that verse. We should. But there's a word in there, perish, which goes to the core of why he came. Because we have voluntarily estranged ourselves from God. We're severed from God and the life that comes only from him. So we're dead, spiritually. And until that severance is repaired, we're done. We're dead. And we'll stay dead. So God begins to stir my heart. Not because I deserve His goodness. He loves me. Lost, wicked, rebellious, He loves me. So He starts going about, we could say, maybe, in a figurative sense, He at least starts to roll the stone away from the tomb. And some light penetrates. And he's working on my heart. And his work is, well, i got to keep going. His work is not always pleasant, nor is it intended to be pleasant. There's goodness, there's happiness, there's joy, there's peace, there's love down the road. But right now, that's not what God wants me to feel. He wants me to feel, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, we didn't read it, but he says the wrath of God abides or is remaining on everyone who doesn't believe in me. This idea then, we, we've just sanitized the gospel. We have sanitized the gospel and we've gotten rid of the wrath of God, judgment, sin, guilt, Shame, punishment, justice. We got rid of it all. We have sanitized the gospel so it's much more palatable. I had a woman tell me one time, I will not come to your church. Okay. To the question, why? Why? Because I don't want to hear 
anything about me that makes me feel bad, then don't hang around Jesus. Don't get within a country mile of Jesus. Yes, he loves us with all of his heart. Died for us. But he is, he is angry with the sinner every day. And he lets us know it. That's what our conscience bothers us. And won't let us feel peace and joy in his presence. We run from him. It started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve <laughs> ran from God because they're guilty. That's where we're at. Yet God chases us. He goes into the brush to get us. But he never, he, so he loves us. But we acknowledge, we have to acknowledge why we're dead. Why are we separated from him before there's ever any closing of the estrangement? So here's what God does. He convicts me, he makes me miserable. I, and I mean this in the right way, when I hear that people that don't know God, but they're, God's tugging at their hearts, and they may begin, some friend or family brings them to church, and they come somewhat consistently, and God's talking to their heart, and you know He is. You know what they'll usually do? This is a good mark that I look for. Do you know what they do? They start getting soft. They start getting tenderhearted. They start getting nicer. They start... No. Most of the time, they become a jerk. They're prickly. They're like Saul. Jesus... Saul, it says, was exceedingly mad. And the word mad there doesn't mean angry. It means nuts. He was just insane with wrath against the gospel, against Christians, and he persecuted them. And on the road to Damascus, when Jesus shone on him with a bright light, I don't know what that voice would have sounded coming out of heaven, knocked him off his horse and blinded him. And he said, Paul, then going by Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? What's he talking about? They would fix a long pointed sharpened stick to the back of an ox cart or whatever, and as an incentive to the ox, or worse, the donkey, that they go forward, that they obey, that they do what they're supposed to do, if they backed up, kicked, whatever, they'd get poked badly with a sharp metal or wooden stick in the back of their leg. And the normal, the normal reaction of an ox or a donkey, and God doesn't mind making the comparison with us, the normal reaction of the donkey or the ox is to kick at whatever's poking him. So he kicks hard, and what does it do? He just tears his leg up. 
And the more he tears his leg up, and the more he gets stuck, the more he kicks, and the more he kicks, the more he rips his leg up. And Jesus, I'm not exaggerating here, I'm not twisting scripture, he's, it's a little note of sarcasm. He's saying, Saul, kind of tough to kick against the goads, isn't it? How's that doing? How's that going for you? That's, God has to stir us up. He has to, he has to let us sense, the Romans, the wrath of God is revealed against all sin and unrighteousness. I got to sense that. I got to know I'm in trouble. Then and only then is when God begins to shine through all that. But I still am for you. I love you. I want you to quit that. I want you to turn. I want to bring you to life. I want to bring you back into my family. I want to end the estrangement. I want to bring you back to life. He does that by convicting us, which then brings us to repentance. Now, Jesus said in speaking to Nicodemus, He that's born of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You know it's real. You hear it, and you see its effect. You see the leaves, and you see the branches bending. But he said, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. There's a lot you don't know. That's what he then wants us to know a bit that we'll look at in the next couple seconds here. So what goes on when this, like the wind which I can't track, is being born of the Spirit? First, there's conviction, which if I cooperate with it, produces repentance. And repentance is godly sorrow or God-caused sorrow for sin and a resolute turning from it. There is no such thing as true Bible repentance that doesn't have as its end, I'm done, Lord, with disobeying you. I don't want to go this way anymore. I want to turn. I want to be different. Repentance that doesn't have that godly sorrow. And by the way, what's the sorrow? To a large degree, not solely, but to a large degree, much of our repentance, or what we would call repentance, is really sorrow for what my sins have done to me. God's after Sorrow for what my sins have done to God and to others. Even in repentance, the human heart is dark enough that we'll still be selfish. God wants me to come to the place where it's God, my heart's grieved for the knowledge that I've grieved your heart who loved me. I'm on the right track when I get to that point. So when I repent and vow, I'm done. 
I am done with the sin business. This all happens in a moment. It happens simultaneously. It will obviously take me longer to explain it than it takes to happen. But when God brings me back to life, the first thing, there's a chronological order even though it all happens at the same time. When I repent, repentance opens the door to faith. When I've truly repented, faith springs up in my heart and I'm able to say, Lord, I trust you that you said if I, if I confess my sins, you'll forgive me. I believe you. I believe you. Repentance can't happen without conviction. Conviction produces repentance. Repentance produces faith. And then what does faith produce? It produces responses from God. And what are those responses? Again, these happen simultaneously and instantly. But we separate them so we can understand them. The first thing that God does is he justifies us. Now, justifying means, and the word justification is everywhere. In the New Testament, God justifies us. It means he, he sets us right. Now, I can't get into all the details here, but it's very important that we recognize two things. Justification means two things. Based on the fact that I have turned from my sins and I have asked God's forgiveness. He pardons me. That's a part, really, of justification. But he pardons me. And then he does two things here. He not only declares me to be righteous in his sight, but he actually makes my heart righteous. So there's both an act on God's part of declaring me righteous because I have sworn off sin and trusted him. But he also changes my heart. There is a, the only reason I need to make that so clear, there is a theology abroad which is quite popular that says God declares me righteous but doesn't actually make me righteous. He just looks at me as righteous. That's false. He changes my heart. And by that heart change and bringing me to life because the gap between my spirit and God's spirit is closed, fellowship is renewed. It's called reconciliation. Paul said the gospel is a message of reconciling with God. When I'm reconciled to God, then that separation is closed God declares me righteous, but he also makes me actually righteous in my heart so that the disposition of my soul is changed. I want to please God now. I no longer want to walk the paths of sin. There's a great ancient hymn Lord, I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. We're coming home to God. He's the one who made us. We've been estranged from Him. We're coming back to Him. And He makes us alive. 
so we can and changes my heart. Then, the second thing, and this again doesn't happen after necessarily, but chronologically, God declares us righteous and sets us right in His sight and accepts us as righteous. And then, instantaneously, on the F, we could say on the heels of that, is what's called regeneration. The other terms for regeneration are born again, born of above, born by the Spirit. God quickens the old versions, quickens, makes alive. He once again brings life into my heart. And now it's the same thing spiritually as the creation story. God has said, formed Adam of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives. God spiritually, and it says, and Adam became a living soul. That's repeated, though in a spiritual sense. When I repent and believe, God declares me righteous because I've sworn off sin and turned from it, and He regenerates me. That's, that's the work He came to do when He said, I came to bring life, and I am the life, the way, the truth. Second Advent, Sunday of Advent, which, which is a human creation, but I don't think God's mad about it. It's preparation, recognizing what all Jesus brought. As the carol said, that in the dark streets of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Jesus came to bring light and life. Do we have it? Do we know that reality? Let's bow our heads. Quiet our hearts. In a moment, <clears throat> we'll dismiss with prayer. But in the meantime, just as we're seated here in a prayerful attitude, Ask God to search our hearts. Do we know we're alive? This morning before I pray, I want to give each one of us an opportunity to do just that. Before my voice interrupts the conversation between you and God, I want you to take a minute and ask the Lord, where am I? And when you ask him that, praise him, thank him if you are alive. And if you're not, now you know the process, if you will, of him, of coming to know him, being born again. So take a moment and pray, and then I'll close.
Father in heaven, you're good, and we are grateful to know your truth. For all of us here in this room this morning that can praise you and thank you for us having the opportunity and the experience of being born again, to be brought from that death, that separation, back to life in Christ. Thank you. Praise you. And as always, Lord, thank you seems like such an insufficient, insignificant word. So I pray for all those that have been born again that we would echo what Paul said in our own lives. Because of therefore, because of this, we offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing, that we not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. May our offering of ourselves be pleasing to you. And if there's a person in here this morning, Lord, that has prayed or watching online for the very first time, has called in the name of Jesus, and has had that experience of being brought from death to life, born again, a new life in Christ, praise you for that work. Thank you for a new believer, Lord. And we just tell them, welcome to the family. Glad you've made that decision this morning. Help them now to walk in your ways. Help them to never remember, never forget what they've just experienced this morning. And for those that might be in the not yet, if you will, Lord, they can hear your voice. They're going through the conviction, but they're not ready to repent. This Christmas season, for them, Lord, I pray that when they look at that manger scene and they see that child there and they ask, what child is this? This is the child that came that they may have life and have it to the full, that they may have light in their heart. So help that person, Lord, keep them under conviction, and that conviction would lead to that repentance that we heard this morning from our pastor, that they would be able to confess their sin and be born again. Pray for that person this morning, Lord, that you would hold them close to you and keep speaking to their hearts. And Father, as we wrap up this service this morning, this Christmas season, looking at the life, light in the life that that child in that manger scene brings, help us to never take for granted the extent that you've gone through to give us an opportunity to be redeemed back into a relationship with you. Father, we thank you and we praise you in the mighty and matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.